My name is Lori Zoloff. I am incoming president of the American Academy of Religion. It is my great privilege to introduce our wonderful speaker today. It is my conviction that if we are neutral in situations of injustice, we have chosen the side of the oppressor. The world must learn respect, listening, and forgiveness. Archbishop Desmond Tutu. This quiet quote is under the signature of every email from John Esposito. It tells you a great deal about this scholar, your AAR president, and I'm very happy to say, my friend. Now, this was not always the case, the friend part, because when I was elected to the AAR board and knew I had to meet John, all I knew of him was his wildly successful persona, the person on CNN and Fox News who explained Islam to us Americans. He was quick, he was bright, he was articulate, and he was quite intimidating, and I was worried. But from our very first AAR meetings, I came to value and trust him entirely. John had an instinct for justice that allowed him to lead the way as the presidential line, Automadura of blessed memory, and myself engaged with the critical moral questions of the year. We spoke nearly every day. What the question we all faced as a board and all of you as members was whether we would support the Hyatt workers' call for a boycott of the very hotel in which we had so carefully planned our meeting. John never hesitated a minute. And he went well beyond the declarations of support for when the workers actually came to our board meeting to make their own case. And they told us of their losses, the tragedies, and the desperation of their lives, explained why we, they needed our support. He followed them out. He got their addresses, and quietly, he sent them a great deal of his own money to help them out. Something, by the way, that I found out later, not from John, but from the union members themselves. And all that year, John worked steadily with the graduate students, the workers, and the board, listening, advocating, and then finally chairing the joint AAR-SBL committee that wrote a labor policy agreement that will allow us to continually honor such boycotts and strikes. He supported the growing democracy inherent in our new governance structure, and he supported the new socially responsible investment plan all the way down the line. This is all an enactment of what Foucault reminds us is at the heart of the Greek civitas. It is this capacity for parhesia, for telling the truth to power, and doing so in public, to be a prophet. It is to be a citizen of the city that is the AAR, one must attend to this, and it is nowhere more important than in the office of the president. John enacts parhesia, and all of us, all of you are far better for it. That is his AAR legacy. Now let me give you a brief account of his academic heritage for those who don't know him. He was born in very Italian Brooklyn, as he will tell you himself, and raised in a Roman, as a Roman Catholic. He spent a full decade in a monastery, then he got his BA, he worked as a management consultant and as a high school teacher. He got an MA in religious studies. And then at Temple University, having its anniversary tonight, he got his doctorate. He became fascinated with Islam. He had postdocs at Harvard, at Oxford, and then spent 20 years teaching religious studies across four different religious traditions at the College of the Holy Cross, a Jesuit college. And then he moved to Georgetown, where he now is both a university professor and professor of religion and international affairs and Islamic studies, and where he was the founding director of the Prince Walid Ben Talil Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. He was president of MESA, the Middle Eastern Studies Association, and the American Council for the Study of Islamic Societies, vice chair of the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy, and is a member of the World Economic Forum's Council of 100 Leaders. He's a recipient of our very own AAR Marty Award for public understanding of religion. And that's just one of the numerous awards for his scholarship, for his books. His books, by the way, number more than 30. Let me just say that for the graduate students in attendance. More than 30 books. Ranging from the four-volume Oxford Encyclopedia of the Modern Islamic World and to, very topically enough, the Iranian Revolution, its global impacts, something clearly he's been thinking about for many years. He does all of this, 30 books. And he is also, I know personally, a gifted teacher and a gifted graduate advisor. His work is topical, it is scholarly, and it is internationally regarded. It is serious work that challenges our assumptions as citizens and our methodologies as scholars. It always teaches us. It always nudges us. 
He is devoted to the theme of this year's meeting, the public engagement with religion. And more than that, his practice of engagement with so many publics, his commitment to so many efforts at Christian-Muslim understanding in particular, his steady work for peace, it is a model for the activist scholar. It has been such a deep pleasure to work so closely with John, and it was such a good surprise for me to have this great ally. A pleasure to learn from him. He reminds us always never to be neutral, and thus his capacity to take a strong stand has shaped this year's work at the AAR. I was proud to be a part of it. So John, I thank you for your service to the field, to your discipline, to our very beloved guild, the Academy, and to me. Thank you. Can I have a copy of that? Okay. Uh, I, I should preface it with a comment. I've, I've, I've never said this before, and I presume if this is recorded, it will be edited. Uh, there'll be a couple of points at which I'll want to see it edited. But, you know, people used to ask me, I've been married <clears throat> 48 years, and so then they'd be surprised about the fact that I was um, a Franciscan for so many years. And one of the questions, even when I was younger, was why? Well, <clears throat> when I was younger, I had one answer. My answer now is that, for me, it was a very safe path. I figured that celibacy and virginity were interconnected. And so celibacy would either get me to heaven, or as I said to my mother, I think that you sent me there because the only way an Italian mother could be sure her, husband, her son remained a virgin was to put him in a monastery. And Jean benefited from that when we were married. Um, okay, um, we live in amazing times. In a little over 50 years, the study of religion has gone global. Uh, if you uh, attended Ka Karen's uh, presentation yesterday, uh, uh, Diana's conversation last night, we see that not only are we talking about, as we would have thought 50 years ago, we could talk about world religions and see it as global, but it was always out there. Now, religious pluralism is not only the challenge in the 21st century in terms of out there, it's here. And, 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 and outgrowths of that religious pluralism, which I will talk about. Technology has taken us from the typewriter, mimeo machines, snail mail to the computer, cell phone, Facebook, and email. You know that you're getting older when you're talking to your staff and you refer to a mimeograph machine, and they honestly have never heard the word and don't know what it was. Uh, for some of them, I think typewriter would be the same thing. So, too, the study of world religions and the role of religion in politics and the public square have been transformed by the globalization of communications and travel. Our governments, societies, schools, universities, and the academy have felt its impact and in many cases have been transformed. Many of us here today have witnessed and participated on, on this journey, both professionally and personally. Today, in light of my scholarship and my experiences in the public understanding of religion, I want to address the impact of the globalization of communications and global conflicts on the development of Islamic studies in particular on attitudes and behaviors towards Islam and on Muslims. Where are we today is very much, though, affected by the religious landscape of the late 20th century. Um, and, for, and for many uh, in this room, um, and certainly graduate students, they wouldn't have a clue unless they happened to study it historically. That is, in the late 20th century, we had a world in which, in 1955, the landscape was, of America was discussed in Will Herberg's book, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew, full stop. But by 1965, suddenly, theologians were talking about the impact of secularization on religion and theology. It was signaled by Harvey Cox in Religion in the Secular City. It was reflected in what popularly came to be called the God is Dead theology, Gabriel Vahanian's book, The Death of God, The Culture of Our Postmodern Era, was but one title and one author. Authors that included Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Thomas Altizer, Paul Van Buren, Richard Rubin, and others. The same um, impact and sense could be seen in the social sciences. The social sciences, in effect, celebrated, reflected the triumph of secularization. It was embodied in modernization and development theory, which conflated 
modernization with the westernization and secularization of societies. In case you think that's dead, take a look at a good deal of the discourse with the Arab Spring and with regard to the transitions of governments in Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, whether that discourse is within the countries, the discourse among academics, some of which is really depressing, liberal leftist academics who right after Morsi was elected on websites discussing whether or not there might be circumstances when a democratically elected president could be removed. This is long before one was seeing it, things percolating with e in Egypt itself. The belief, one might say dogma, that modernization and progress necessitated the secularization and westernization of society, the adoption or adaptation of western-inspired models and institutions of political, economic, educational development. Religion would decline, so it said, in the public uh, sphere, at least if you wanted to become modern. It would be marginalized, it would be limited to private life, and maybe even move on, as one anthropologist of religion uh, <coughs> talked. He talked about uh, witchcraft, the development of religion, and then science. And others, of course, would move beyond that. For Islam and Muslims, as Daniel Lerner characterized it, Muslims would have a choice between Mecca and mechanization, between Mecca and mechanization, all part of the passing of traditional societies. That had a tremendous impact on questions like, and continues to, is Islam compatible with modernity and democracy? Can Muslims or Islamic movements embrace a democratic process? And more recently, can Muslims integrate and be loyal citizens in North America and Europe? Uh, I have often said that I have the best job in the world. For 40 years, I've been asked the same questions, and that's literally true. <laughs> you know, what is Islam? Is it a particularly violent religion? How can it be a religion if it had a prophet who was a warrior? Had a big conversation on radio on that and had to remind him uh, that the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament also had prophets who were warriors. Um, and the only difference is that today I get paid for it. So that's the big difference. Or as I like to put it, I almost said this in Iran one time when I was speaking there, I owe my career and my Lexus to the Ayatollah Khomeini. Okay. So where did Islam, Muslims and Islamic studies, fit into this landscape? It's difficult for many today to remember what it was like then. Only a few decades ago, in the U.S. and Europe, and I'm primarily interested with the U.S. today, if you grew up in cosmopolitan New York as I did, actually Brooklyn, which is different from talking about New York if you're from Brooklyn, but the reality of it was Muslims were invisible. It's not that there weren't Muslims in the country. Islamic centers and mosques were absolutely invisible. In fact, the oldest mosques in the United States, ironically, were in places like Iowa and outside of Boston, not in Boston. So within 30, 40 years, that landscape has changed. Mosques, Islamic centers, coverage of Islam and Muslims in media, most universities and colleges, let alone secondary education, was negligible. Scholars of Islam were few and far between, and most of the time they were seen as people who dealt with texts, not so much texts and context, people who dealt with language and literature. In our pro professional associations, it was the AOS. Mesa and AAR had no coverage. We did not get a, a task force on Islam until the mid-70s. Okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon that took place, let alone what occurred after the Iranian Revolution, when very rapidly you had suddenly people being elected as president of Mesa, three of my colleagues in our center, almost in succession, six of my colleagues at Georgetown who deal with Islam became presidents of Mesa. Before that, if you're absent in Mesa in terms of you know, your, your, your speaking, or especially if you're speaking but you're not dealing with religion, then you're absent in terms of any sense that you have, uh, that, uh, you know, that you're a, a leader. Uh, Temple University was the first university, at least that I know of, <clears throat> to introduce, <clears throat> excuse me, the study of Islam where you could get a degree in a religion department. For many of my colleagues, they were trained at the University of Chicago, they were trained at the University of Virginia, uh, and, and many other universities, usually in history or even uh, sort of history of religion type uh, programs. The response of colleagues and family to my chosen career was interesting. Why study Islam? And in fact, actually, when I get out speaking, most Muslims ask me why I studied Islam, and most Christians ask me, having very different agendas in their mind. Uh, 
the, the best one was you'll never get a job because the whole notion was I was at that time a young Catholic theologian teaching scripture and theology, and there would always be theology and religion departments. And when I got out in 74, but when I was looking for a job in 72, there was one job, if I remember, that was narrowly in Islamic studies, and the other job that I applied for was at Holy Cross, where uh, I was told by the chair when he interviewed me, and I said, I can do Hinduism and Buddhism. They were my minors. I've done Christianity, but my major is Islam. And he said, we're not looking for somebody in Islam. And even worse, he said, I prefer somebody in Japanese and Chinese religions. But that's another story about academia, which we'll get into. Um, okay, so how about the military? How about government? Totally absent. The training of foreign service officers, the training of military, totally absent. And not only that, our officers who were in the field were not encouraged to look at religion. When the Iranian Revolution came along, a colleague of mine who had been in the embassy talked about the fact, and in fact the then ambassador talked about it, that there was no contact with the ulama, no going to the universities and dealing with the students and the students of, of religion. And indeed, when you would talk to analysts who were in the, you know, in the field who were reporting back to Washington, it was just like risk, risk assessment. I used to do risk assessment on countries. They never worked in the religion factor. And so when Iran came along, people saw it as an epiphenomenon. I had to actually ask my wife when they first used that word because I didn't know what it meant. Again, from Brooklyn, we have a limited vocabulary. Uh, and I remember Gene saying, use a dictionary. And I don't use a dictionary. I just rely on having my wife. Okay. Um, so there may be a time when I have to defer to her in the audience tonight. But the, re the reality of it was that for 10 years before the Iranian Revolution, Islam was being used by Numeri in Sudan, by Sadat in Egypt, by Gaddafi in Libya, and by Ali Bhutto in Pakistan to legitimate their form of nationalism and to mobilize support. And in Pakistan, before Iran, you had both a secular socialist, Bhutto, and religious parties calling for Nizami Islam, an Islamic system of government. All of that was under the radar. John Vol was right. He said to me, I better stick to this because it's pretty long, because I'm going to go off as I just did. But I thought I did that brilliantly. OK. Um, <laughs> then came the turning point. Oh, book proposals. I sent out reams of book proposals. No answer. Three people responded, including Oxford. Great idea, no market. After the Iranian Revolution, in five weeks, three book contracts. And those of you who are in the field, do a search you know, on the internet. You'll see that reflected. Books on Islam, no need to produce another one. When I said I was going to write one, they said, well, we already have Gib and Fazer Rahman. Nobody talked about the fact that the books were originally cast in the early 1960s, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that the shortest chapter was dealing with the 19th and 20th century, communicating what? That the great reformers were seen as Abdu and Iqbal. Abdu died in 1905. Iqbal died in 1938, and those were the last people being talked about even when I did my graduate work into the, into the 70s. I just did a, a program in Dubai, and I evaluated uh, their programs at a university, and I said to the, the young women, it was a, a group of women students, so when you're in Islamic political thought, what do you, what do you study? They said, al-Muwardi and, 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 and Qutb. I said, that's great, but they're dead. I said, did you study anybody who's alive? And they sort of looked at me. You know? And I was waiting for them to at least say, you know, Iqbal and Abdu, so we have a lot of work to do. The turning point then was the Iranian Revolution and fear of its export. That made the Middle East and American interest and European interest, which have to do with oil, 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 the safety and security of Israel, a number of those interests, that put Islam on the front burner. And the same thing happened with publishing, the same thing happened with media. I can remember during the uh, revolution, um, when they had the hostages, every morning we'd get a report, and Barry Serafin would go to the gate, and Miriam would begin with, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and then she would have a short passage from the Quran. By about the third day, Barry was saying to her, in effect, could you skip the opening? So here we are, we're worried about what might be, you be doing to our hostages, and we don't realize we're insulting somebody when we say, wait a second, cut to the chase. And I remember Tom Brokaw interrupting the broadcast to say, um, for our viewers, I should mention that Islam is one of the world religions. It has a scripture called the Quran, and its prophet is named Muhammad. And then he moved forward. Now, I mean, think about that, you know? I mean, we're supposed to, we, 
have one of the most educated, well, I take that back now. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. So it created a challenge. What was the challenge? Number one, to broaden more traditional notions of Islamic studies and coverage and scholarship, to pursue a more multidisciplinary approach and analysis of modern context as well as text. And indeed, many of our colleagues have done that. It created a market for experts, a subject of vital interest for media, government, congressional briefings, but there was a problem. Most of us were not educated to deal with the modern context, you know, the traditional curriculum for Islamic studies. And most of us did not deal with Shia Islam. Most of the programs dealt with Sunni Islam. One of the really first-rate Iran scholars, Jim Bill of the time, told me that he never took Islam seriously. It was never studied seriously in his PhD at Princeton, other than something in the distant past. It was only when he did field research in Iran that he realized that he didn't know anything about modern Shiism, got Sayyid Hussein Nasser to tutor him in Iran at the time. So I literally can say that the advantage when we got the answering machines came at that time was that you'd get the New York Times calling and then you didn't have to answer. So they could ask the question and then you would scurry to answer it. You know, how many scholars at the time could talk about what an Ayatollah was, how the Ayatollah system functioned, and how that played out. In briefings that Fazur Rahman, Michael Fisher, Bill Beeman, and myself did together for the Secretary of State, we were asked to go in the National Security Council when we had the hostages, it was appalling how little was known about the situation. When someone said you have to be concerned in terms of influence of Khomeini and Shariati, someone who had said earlier that he had been in the Middle East for 25 years establishing his bona fides said, Good, then we have to get to Shariati, the youth leader. We have to get him to intervene for us. And he kept saying, where can we find him? And I didn't answer him. And finally, he said in frustration, why are you not answering him? Where can we find him? I said, actually, he's buried in London, and it was done quite a few years ago. I mean, you know, even as one was doing background research, there was no dealing with that, let alone really understanding Khomeini, the idea that you could have this bearded, Mullah, who had been out of Iran for more than 20 years, lived in exile in, I forget where we are now, this is Baltimore. And in D.C., I say, in a place like Fairfax, you know, I mean, you don't see it as Main Street, and that somehow that person would come back and be the head of a government, and that, and that that revolution could take place without, you know, a bullet being fired by those who were actually in that revolution. All of that was incredible for people to understand, just as it was incredible after the Arab Spring, when Islamists who were not involved in that first surge suddenly won the elections all these years later, not understanding the dynamics that are taking place. Okay. Um, I do have to move. John, you were right again. Um, okay. A common belief in government at that time, as in our society, and for younger people, this will be completely off your radar, was that you don't talk about politics and religion. I was a ham radio operating, you don't talk about religion on ham radio. When things changed later, when religion became part of our society, suddenly I get on ham radio and you've got all these ministers and priests, you know, having their connections, etc. The idea in government was that you don't discuss this. Um, the State Department developed a program right after the Iranian Revolution. There was a debate in the State Department about getting a scholar to go out in their American participant program. The AMPAR program was send to send out people in American studies, lawyers, to kind of, you know, speak at the cultural centers. And the idea of having somebody go out and talk about Islam was, so they debated it, and the idea of having a non-Muslim go out. Finally, they did it with a great deal of debate. I went out. Fortunately, it was successful. And then they launched a program of non-Muslim scholars and Muslim scholars. Parenthetically, I discovered a couple of years later that I was entitled to see my reviews. And I had been lecturing in all different Muslim countries. So I asked for the reviews. And they noted with great glee in Pakistan, where the person writing this had a PhD uh, in English from an American university and was an American, that I had had intimate relations with 78 people in Karachi. And I thought, I don't remember, you know? I don't remember, you know? Uh, but it was really interesting. He was so excited about the idea that he had all of these Muslims showing up. You would go and give a talk, and people from the embassy would come and say, can I come with you? Because they had never gone there. And they were nervous about meeting people you know, who were seen as mullahs, etc. All of that has changed. The good news is 
explosion of interest, information coverage of Islam, development of a multidisciplinary study of the role of religion in religious movements, and its broad dissemination. The bad news is the primary lens, the primary motivator, the primary lens through which we began to see Islam was through Iran, fear of revolution, assassination of Sadat, and we can do the scenario, scenario all the way down. Saddam Hussein, the first invasion, right down to bin Laden. So we've got that good media, and then we've got that problematic media. And I'll come back to that after with some statistics on media coverage. In the 1980s, this was an issue. In the 1990s, with the fall of the Soviet Union, you suddenly had both our senior government leaders and media talking about now the passing of the red menace, but whether or not there was a green menace. The morning that I signed my book, the contract for my book, The Islamic Threat, and I used to hound Cynthia Reed and OUP after it because I was afraid that all of this would disappear. You know? So I'm going to write this book about the potential of Islam being seen as a global threat. That morning, I was literally at the State Department. I went up to talk to an assistant secretary of state who helped dealt with human rights. His first question to me was, is Algeria another Iran? And so I said, they're two different countries, and the last thing we want to do is to develop this idea that Algeria is another Iran. Demographics are different, role of the military. It's, oh, I understand that, but he said, you do realize that Islam could be the next global threat because it's a global religion, it's so large, it's numbers, and so it could be a global threat. Shortly after that, you began to have writings saying that Islam was a triple threat. The first two of the triple threat were historic. That is, historically, it's been a political threat and a civilizational threat. In effect, a clash of civilizations existing over 14 centuries. The next iteration was demographic threat. The Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming. The last chapter of my Islamic threat, I had this stale uh, title for the chapter. And uh, I kept thinking, what should I call it? So I thought, let me just characterize it. I said, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming. Well, I could have been nailed for plagiarism because little did I know Daniel Pipes had published an article with that exact title, you know? But other loony things have happened too since then. All right, uh, so old images of those stereotypes of the desert, Arabia, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> excuse me, a thousand and one nights, etc., were replaced by the symbol of the Quran and the Kalashnikov. I, I gave a lecture at the University of Kentucky, and I'm, I, I think it was, or it might have been Louisville. This is better than, than whoever you are from that university. I've named two now. And the dean had written to me and said, it's going to be a really good program, and, and they did a terrific uh, piece of art for the stage. And she said, it's so good, I have one. So I walk in to do my lecture, and I'm getting close, and I see Quran, and I see Bismillahi, Rahman. And then I see this kind of vague thing, and I get closer, and it's an arm with a Kalashnikov in it, which kind of sets it up terrifically when you're going to be a speaker in terms of a symbol right behind you. So this is the kind of thing that was beginning to emerge. We saw it with Bernard Lewis's Roots of Muslim Rage, in which he used the word clash of civilizations, and uh, Huntington's uh, uh, article, The Clash of Civilizations, which I should tell you, I was on a panel with Huntington on Islamic fundamentalism, uh, Judy Miller, myself, and others, two months before his article appeared. Sam began by saying, I don't know why I'm on this panel. I'm not a specialist on the Middle East and Islam. Fuad Ajami, who chaired it, said at the end, there's a great article coming out by Sam without telling us what it was. And of course, it was a clash of civilizations. So think about you know, that kind of linkage. But listen to this. For the general public in America and Europe today, Islam is news of a particularly unpleasant sort. This is a direct quote. The media, the government, the geopolitical strategists, and although they are marginal to the culture at large, the academic experts, there's a good shot, on Islam are all in concert. Islam is a threat to Western civilization. Now, this is by no means the same as saying that only derogatory or racist characters of Islam are to be found in the West. What I am saying is that negative images, this is still somebody else, what I am saying is that negative images of Islam are very much more prevalent than any others, and that such images correspond not with what Islam is, but to what prominent sectors of a particular society take it to be. Islam in the West, a clash of civilizations, question mark. Those sectors have the power and the will to propagate that particular image of Islam, 
And this image, therefore, becomes more prevalent, more present than all others. Can anyone tell me who said that? Edward Said, in 1981, 10 years before Bernard Lewis wrote his piece. I discovered that, that dating and stuff, only when I was putting these comments together. And I thought, oh my God, you know? I mean, I'd known it, but I never looked at the date when Edward said it. So that triple threat then emerges. And in Sam Huntington, it was seen in spades because Sam used the phrase in his article, Islam has bloody borders. And when his book came out, he left that sentence in. And he and I did a TV program. And both the uh, moderator and myself said, you still use the phrase, rather than Muslim countries, or some, or many have bloody borders, Islam has bloody borders. You know, would you wish to change it? And I think he reflected where lots of folks are coming from. Sam was much more out front about that. The war on global terrorism ratcheted up media coverage, 9-11, 7-7, and other attacks. Domestically, this fear came to emerge, called Islamophobia in the UK, and never referred to, never talked about as a phenomenon in any significant way until Park 51. Time magazine was the first publication to do a cover story that said, is America Islamophobic? And I, you ought to read it by Bobby Ghosh, the article inside, because if you read the article, you'll know what the response is. I did long programs with CNN and interviews with the New York Times, um, and they would, in the middle of it, break, when we, you know, we take a break from recording, and, and literally say, what is this? What's going on at Park 51? It's so-called mosque. Where's this coming from? You know, this, this you know, a mosque, monuments to terrorism, etc. And I said, it's the tip of the iceberg. But in the U.S., because we didn't name, when you don't have a name, and a name that's seen as negative, you know, there was a time when you could say anything you wanted about African Americans. As soon as you begin to apply the word racism, and it's seen as to, be, to, to say that and be called a racist, it's a problem, just like to say things and be called an anti-Semite is a problem, then one backs off. If you never name that phenomenon, Baroness Warsi just spoke at Georgetown, on uh, religious freedom. And a lot of it, most of it had to do with the threat to Christians in the Middle East, but she also talks about Islamophobia. Her speech was covered wonderfully by one of the newspapers there that is very anti-Muslim in approach. And it said, what a great speech and what courage it took to talk about Christianity. But then it could help us say, but on the other hand, she used the word Islamophobia. You know, and is that really kind of a reality? Does that really exist? Now, a phobia, according to the dictionary, is an exaggerated, illogical fear of a particular class of objects, a, a particular situation. It may be hard for those afflicted to sufficiently determine or communicate the source of this fear, but it exists. And in recent years, it is that kind of fear. Now, here I'm not talking about criticism of Islam that is reasoned and empirical. I'm not talking about criticism of Muslims. I'm talking about hate speech. I'm talking about a speech which engages in an exceptionalism, okay? So, what are the kinds of things that Islamophobes believe? Islam, not just a small minority of extremists and terrorists, is the problem and the threat to the West. The religion of Islam has no common values with the West. Islam and modernity are incompatible. Islam is an inherently violent religion with an extremist political ideology. Philip Jenkins, Bishop Spong, have written very interesting books on violence in the Bible and the degree of violence. And as Philip Jenkins said, if you were, he didn't, I'll tell you what he said. I was just going to say what I would say. But think about, I'm talking comparatively. Philip Jenkins said, there is a way in which you can look at certain passages in the Bible and see God ordering genocide. If you don't understand the context, that's what you would interpret. Okay. And yet, when we deal, for example, with Quranic texts wherever I go, people will say, well, what about slay the unbelievers wherever you find them? Without looking at what comes after that. Write just a sentence or two later. You know, when the enemy stops fighting you, you must stop. But also, who were the unbelievers at the time? They weren't Christians and Jews. They were the Meccans. But the irony is that hardline Christian Zionists and some of our neocons talk just the way the bin Ladens of the world do. 
they both distort the meaning of the text. Bin Laden and others do the same thing. They don't interpret that text within the context and what it, what it said. Okay. <clears throat> Think about the impact on the U.S. Look at the 2008 presidential elections, the 2012, and the congressional elections. President Obama in 2008, his people, when he had a successful visit to Dearborn, did not want him to be photographed, asked some young women who were wearing hijab to move out of the picture. But that's not astonishing. The real astonishing thing is that today, six years into his presidency, five, six years into his presidency, he has never visited a mosque, never been photographed near one. And yet, he has been at mosques overseas. What does that tell you? If, you know... He's certainly gone to religious institutions for the first largest and the second largest of our religion. Okay? Now we'll have a little test. Name for me five major appointments of Arabs or Muslims in this administration. Five major in the government. Can anybody raise your hand? Five, four, three. Name for me three major ambassadors who are Arab and Muslim in background right now. Two, one. Okay, now back. David Cole, commenting on events right after 9 said this. Great book. David Cole, Georgetown Law School. You read him in the Atlantic. You read him all over. Less Safe, Less Free is the book. And, and it's a great read. A great read. I mean, it's not just the ideas. It's a very engaging book. By its own accounts, he says, it, the U.S. government, locked up immediately after 9-11 over 5,000 foreign nationals in preventive detention in the first two years after 9-11 sought out 8,000 Arab and Muslim men for FBI in, uh, interviews, called in 80,000 Arab and Muslim foreign nationals for special registration, fingerprinting, photographing. The idea was that we might find a terrorist, but the government's record in this regard is zero for 93,000. No one of these men at that, at that time when he wrote this has been convicted of a terrorist act. Now, that's not to deny that we don't have a problem with domestic terrorism, but I'm talking about that reaction. The reaction I had in a discussion on NPR with someone who runs a major center on uh, democracy, a democracy center, at a major, major West Coast university to these numbers was, but, as he said at the end, they were all freed. That should be good news for Muslims. I was going to say, would that your tribe were in the same situation? Okay, all right. How significant is the media? A major study of, uh, by Media Tenor, M-E-D-I-A, Tenor, it's right on the internet, T-E-N-O-R, called A New Era of Arab-Western Relations, noted that 900, nearly, they reviewed 975,000 news stories in U.S. and European media outlets and said that it demonstrates an astonishing imbalance. What does that mean? Here's where it breaks out. 2001, coverage of extremists, 2%. Coverage of mainstream Muslims and Islam, in other words, the context, 0.1%. Jump 10 years later. 2011, extremist coverage, 2%, goes up 28%. Coverage of mainstream, care to guess, remains at 0.1%. Okay. Most recently, in another study, a study done in 2013, and we just had uh, the, the fellow who runs at Roland Chats at Georgetown. Over the last three years, coverage of Islam, of mainstream Islam, Muslims, and Islamic organizations has decreased notably. Therefore, Islam is, is portrayed primarily as a source of violence. What does that mean quantitatively? On balance, three and four reports painted a negative image of American Muslims. Okay. All right, let's jump ahead. All right. Major force in this in recent years is social media. Social media played an enormous role with Park 51. It wasn't a major issue for a year or two. It was approved in New York. It was when people like Robert Spencer, Pam Geller, who run a host of websites, Jihad Watch, uh, uh, Islamization in America, you name it, when they mobilized media and particularly social media. And so then what did we see? a tsunami wave of anti-mosque activities across from New York to California, stopping mosque building, stopping expansions, hate crimes against mosques, and then the famous Sharia frenzy. So far, some 29 states 
trying to uh, put in anti-Sharia laws when it's impossible under, under our Constitution to do that. But why did they do it? Because people like Newt Gingrich, Michelle Botman, Rick Santorum, and others jump. And not only they, the last presidential debate, every Republican candidate, either at that debate or in the two years before, had engaged in this kind of rhetoric, of exceptionalism. Could you see a Muslim in Congress? Could you see a Muslim uh, in, uh, in the cabinet? What special questions might be asked, etc.? Over the past decade, there's been, uh, okay, I have 15 more minutes, so I'm okay, good. Because there's no questions and answers. This is all wisdom. All right. Um, no, if we have a chance, I'd like to have that, but feel free to email me. Um, and then you get an email message that says, I get so many emails, I read them all, trust me, but I can't respond to them all. No, but I mean, seriously, if you want to email me, I'd be happy to respond to you. Okay. Over the past decade, what we've seen is an emergence of we in a new project that we're launching at Georgetown called an Organized Islamophobia Network. It is a cottage industry that has meticulously cu cultivated, been cultivated by anti-Muslim polemicists and their resourceful funders who master the domain of the internet with dozens of highly visible blogs and websites supported by hundreds of user blogs. They link, so it's not just things called Jihad Watch. It then gets picked up and linked to uh, things like Pajama Media, American Thinker, Family Security, which are not primarily concerned with Muslims, but happen to be neoconservative, uh, anti-Obama, uh, anti-immigrant, and therefore also get into the Islam and Muslim side. If you look at Alexa, which rates websites globally, two years ago, about approximately two years ago, those websites ranked very high. 25,000 there is very high. Any anti-Islamophobia website ranked, those ranked in the 400,000. Now, oh gosh, how could that happen? Obviously, you need both brains and funds. A study by the Center for American Progress found that during a 10-year period, the study was in 2011, during a 10-year period, $42.6 million, I'll repeat that, $42.6 million, flowed from seven major foundations over 10 years to these Islamophobic authors and websites. And, and that information is taken from IRS returns, so it's not claims. A recent study by CARE, the information taken from IRS returns, showed that between 2008 and 2011, 1.19 million 662 dollars total revenue between 2008 and 2011 were given to US-based Islamophobia networks. Now, why are they influential? Not only because I said, read Breivik, the uh, Norwegian terrorist, his uh, Manifesto, and he cites many of these people in websites, some of them 112 times. I'm proud to tell you that Breivik devotes a whole page attacking myself and my center, uh, but quoting <laughs> the other side on just how bad we are. Okay. okay, what's the result? Just very quickly, more than four out of 10 Americans admit that they have prejudice, some 43%, and that it's a prejudice twice that towards any other religion. 33% of Americans dis disclosed that they believe that Muslim Americans were more sympathetic to terrorists. 60% of those polled have negative feelings about Muslims. Significant numbers, I forget the statistic, it just came to me now, that this fact, something like 40% believe in things like special IDs, uh, believe that, uh, that Muslims, not only are Muslims more prone, okay, but Islam gets an even more negative ranking, which is kind of interesting. You know, so... The number of Muslims that they don't trust, it's a high percentage, but even more so, it's Islam, because what they're saying is Islam is the problem. But what about these American Muslims? Who are they? They are totally integrated educationally, economically, and increasingly politically. We've got all the data out there. No one looks at it. It comes from Pew, from Gallup. Muslims come from 68 countries, one of the most racially, economically, and politically diverse populations in terms of education. In religious communities, they're second to American Jews in terms of education. So they're among the most educated. 40% have college's degrees versus 29% of Americans overall. Muslim women are statistically as educated as Muslim uh, men uh, with college or postgraduate degrees. They span the socioeconomic spe uh, spectrum, doctors, lawyers, you name it, all the way to cab drivers. 
NGO leaders, etc. Uh, 31% are full-time students compared to 10% in the general population. Incredible youth bulge. 59% of adult Muslims are between the age of 18 and 39. The number of senior people who are Muslim is so small that Gallup couldn't even do a significant study of them. So you've got a real youth bulge there. Regarding religion, 77% said Muslims worship the same God as Christians and Jews. 84% said Muslims should strongly emphasize shared values. 48%, okay, so that's, that's that. All right, conclusion. Good. Uh, despite what real statistics tell us about the Muslim population in America, Islam and Muslims continue to be viewed through the lens of the other. And both mass media and social media continue to be major uh, players. And this is the important thing. I believe social media is the most important thing today. Social media frames popular culture. And indeed now, the driver for TV and print is social media. If you can get social media generating a whole mess of stories, then it's worthy of being put on television. And that happens regularly. Okay. How do we respond to all of this? Let's look at it on a positive note. It's true that we continue to make strides in developing reliable scholarly coverage. And there's media coverage. We look at Muslim politics and society and communities in the West. First of all, internet access to authoritative resources needs to be provided. And this is occurring. You have Diana X Pluralism Project. You have the Compassion Project in terms of understanding religions, including Islam. And you have Oxford Islamic Studies Online. Uh, I'm going to say some stuff about it, but I should tell you ahead of time, I'm the editor-in-chief of it, so there's some self-interest involved here. This website has one of the most erudite and attractive young men as the editor-in-chief. Oh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> this website gives, gives users access to major reference works, encyclopedias, dictionaries, artwork, Quranic materials, primary sources, and now interviews with major Muslim uh, activists and players. On another level, AAR members have shown an interest in the public understanding of religion, and many of them have reached out. The academy itself got involved in the Tariq Ramadan visa situation. But secondly, there is clearly an expanding acceptance of and response to the concept of Islamophobia. And indeed, many projects have been developed. Center for American Progress, we're developing one. There's one at Berkeley, et cetera. But much more needs to be done. Uh, Media Tenet just came out with another study that basically says Islamophobia is growing in America and Europe. And if you talk to Europeans, that's the case. You have major projects like Common Word, which brought together 138 religious leaders and then another four, uh, a total of 400 signed on and basically said to, to Christians, we share with the two global religions, we need to work together because we share uh, an interest both religiously and also in issues of security of our populations. And what do we share in common? What Jews, Muslims, and Christians share in common? Love of God, love of neighbor. But parenthetically, I don't have to, time to unpack it, but historically I would argue that the problem that most of those religious traditions have is answering the question, who is the neighbor? And that needs to be readdressed today in terms of the, uh, the question of pluralism. Okay. Our scholarship of religion, all religions, and we scholars have responsibilities as scholars and as citizens. And that's why I think the public understanding of religion is not just something that happens out there. I remember when I first got involved, was asked to get involved in doing what we might call public understanding of religion. I went to a reception here for one of the major universities and mentioned it to colleagues, and they all said, you can't touch that, because academics always felt have nothing to do with government. That's not what we do. Well, as both scholars, we provide data that's important for people to understand the context, and as citizens, we should be out there also applying that data to and raising issues to real-life situations. If we're not the go-to place and we're still not there, media does not immediately call the AR as if we're the privileged place, even though we have that kind of bureau set up. We need to address that. 
Thomas Jefferson said, an educated citizenry is a vital requisite for our survival as a free people. AAR scholars had been moved to lend their expertise, to speak out, to engage in the public square. As an organization, we took a position on TAR, but we need to move significantly beyond that. And to ratchet it up, I strongly encourage you to attend today at 5 p.m. The Public Understanding of Religions Committee has a panel, scholar activists, academics making a difference in the public square, in which they will interview four people, asking them why did they get in, how did they get in, what are the pitfalls, etc. And tomorrow, there is another panel uh, in the afternoon that will also, <coughs> excuse me, address that. Scholars continue to be needed to speak out publicly at conferences, at workshops run by domestic and international organizations, to speak to governments, NGOs, religious and civic organizations, to participate in media, to serve as expert witnesses. We cannot allow, and I'm not saying that everybody has to do this. Many of us don't work in a field that is relevant. Many of us don't have the disposition. So we can do it in terms of the kinds of things that maybe we choose to write, you know, but we may not want to speak out because there is a cost. Okay, one has to be aware of the fact there is a cost. If you stick your head up, there'll be those who want to shoot it off. I mean, that's simply a reality. But we need to be out there because if we're not speaking out the resources, we leave it to those people with no training, like Robert Spencer, who's a best-selling author. If you go to Amazon.com, depending on when you do it, may not be today, sometimes the top, out of the top five or six books on Islam, four of them will be books written by people who need to be responded to, who are making claims that only we scholars can say, this is simply a distortion of reality. This is not true. The White House has been told under both Bush and, uh, and this president, and it has a diversity of opinions coming in, but members of government have been told consistently that 80% of our mosques are a threat. No hard data for it, but in Washington they say, if you, know, if you throw it up on a wall three times, it sticks, and it does stick. So we need to be out there. We need to be concerned in responding because look more recently. The current example of the Arab Spring, Islamist victories in Egypt and Tunisia, a military coup, and its overthrow of a democratically elected president raised many issues. And whatever side we want to take, we need to be bringing to bear what we believe are principles that we know about the role of religion, politics, civil liberties, attitudes towards torture, Etc. We are the ones needed to leave the way. And I close, you stole some of my thunder here, I close with the words of the incomparable Archbishop Tutu, honored at this meeting with Templeton Prize. And I really want us to think about this. I find this a really good mantra in a way. It is my conviction that if we are neutral in situations of injustice, sorry, we, we have chosen the side of the oppressor. The world must learn about respect, listening, and forgiveness. Thank you.